Hi, Tiny Matters listeners. Before we get into today's episode, which we think you'll really enjoy, we want to take a couple minutes to say thank you. We're now closing out year two of Tiny Matters, which is wild to think about. And this is episode 50. Our number of listeners has more than doubled since this time last year, which makes us feel really good about what we're doing. And in addition to listening, thanks for writing in with episode ideas and questions and for rating us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's a huge, huge help to us. So if you haven't done it yet, please do it as a holiday gift to us and tell your friends, your family, your frenemies. We really, really do appreciate it. We're also so grateful to our many guests. We've had more than 100, I think, since we started this more than two years ago. We've covered a lot of topics this past year. Apparently, there are a lot of tiny things out there that matter, which I hope is a good sign for the longevity of this show. So today, Deboki and I are going to each share a few of our favorites, which we actually haven't shared with each other before recording. So I know I'm really excited to hear what you picked, Deboki. Yeah, looking over the episodes from this last year was super fun. I had so many moments of like, oh, right, that's the one where we got to talk about the thing. So I'm excited to hear what you picked, too. Okay, let's hop right in. My first clip is from episode 44. The title is Asteroid Bennu, Osiris-Rex, and the Apollo 11 Moon Microbe Scare, The Challenge of Bringing Home Samples from Space. And so when we recorded this podcast, you know, podcast schedules and real life schedules, they don't always line up. And we recorded this episode before the return of samples from asteroid Bennu via the OSIRIS-REx mission. So today for this little recap moment, I actually wanted to start off by giving a little update on the mission. And the important thing is that it was successful. The samples returned on September 24th. They landed in Utah and ultimately were transported to Houston and they got plenty of material. Apparently there was even some like bonus debris surrounding the main collection container that scientists have already begun looking at. And one of the things we talked about in that episode is how scientists share these space samples. There were some really, really fantastic stories from like previous sample sharing situations. So it was really cool to hear that in this case with the Bennu samples, they've are, NASA has already sent out some of these samples to um, institutions in the UK. I think there's been around like 100 milligrams of samples sent out. And these institutions include the Natural History Museum. So a lot of people are going to get to look at these samples and use different techniques, different tools, and learn a lot about what is in them. Sorry to interrupt. Go for it. I will also say that um, the Smithsonian got some too. Too, oh, DC. awesome. Yeah. yeah. See, yeah. everyone's getting getting some asteroid sample. Yes. And so some of the early tests from NASA show that there's carbon and water-like minerals in the material from Bennu. So that's all really exciting. It's going to tell us more about how some of these compounds maybe may have gotten to Earth. So there's just a lot to, to learn. And so for today, here's Sierra Gonzalez, who is on the mission's operations engineering team at Lockheed Martin, describing some of the surprises that came up on the mission. Bennu has been throwing a lot of surprises at us from the very beginning. Uh, we originally thought Bennu was going to be a sandy asteroid based on the imagery we got here on Earth. And then when we arrived, it was boulders on top of boulders on top of rocks on top of boulders. So we had to change a lot of our engineering mindset of how we were going to collect this sample. And then when we were orbiting the asteroid, we actually saw activity on the surface. In fact, it was almost like it was spitting pebbles at us. And then, of course, when we collected our sample, we collected so much, an overabundance of sample, 
that uh, we were overflowing and needed to speed up the time frame to stow the sample and move up everything by a week to get it stowed and safely captured so that we didn't lose any more precious sample. So there's lots of surprises along the way that, you know, surprised all of us. And it keeps it interesting because in space, you can't design for everything. It's millions of miles away. You can't go up and fix anything <laughs> either. So there's lots of really cool problem solving that gets to happen along the way. It really struck me how she says in space, you can't design for everything. It's millions of miles away. And right. I don't know, at least I wasn't even really thinking about like, okay, if something goes wrong, like no one's there to fix this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, no one's there to fix this, but... Just thinking about having to control something that's happening millions of miles away is amazing. And then on top of it with so much pressure, because this was just such a big, this was a big deal. This is the first time the United States did this. Mm -hmm. And so I'm so happy it was successful. I know. Yeah, there's just so much time and so much money and like so much everything put into these missions. But also like part of the reason why we're doing them is because we don't know what it's going to be like when we get there, which only makes the planning like that much harder. Like the entire point is that it's a mystery. And so you can't, you can't plan around all of that ambiguity. You can't plan for every situation that's going to go wrong. I mean, even just the fact that they thought the asteroid was going to be sandy and mm -hmm. then it was rocky is like, yeah. that's a pretty big difference yep. <laughs> that then you have to sort of refocus, recalibrate, I guess, yep. <laughs> to be able to handle. So I, yeah. yeah, awesome. So the first clip that I'm going to share was from episode 34, which is titled Treating Depression Then Versus Now and the SSRI Debate. So there's a whole lot of misinformation out there about depression, as well as debate surrounding how it's treated. Depression is a mood disorder. It impacts over 300 million people across the globe. And in this episode, we covered the history of treating depression. And part of that was actually talking about the effectiveness of SSRIs, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which over the last few years, uh, I had been noticing were in the news a lot more and that there were a lot of pretty prominent people just saying, like outright that they didn't work. And, you know, SSRIs have been around for a while. This obviously then made me want to look into it because that's my nature. So really in, in this episode, there's a lot that we unpack. And it is true that SSRIs do not work for everyone, but they are life-saving for some people. And really at the end of the day, what it comes down to is that we need something better. So here's a clip from David Hellerstein, who is a professor of clinical psychiatry at the Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. He's also the director of the Depression Evaluation Service at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. To my mind, the real challenge is finding treatments that are more effective, work more quickly, have fewer side effects or toxicities, and that can really treat the really high uh, level of psychiatric suffering, really, that we see in our current society. So I think one can argue there's a lot of kind of essentially rehashing of how well, how well were those studies done in the 1980s and 90s, and how many negative studies were there, and what's kind of, if you're thinking of a from a scientific point of view, what's the effect size and what's the placebo response rate? And, you know, there, we can, you can go into the weeds about that. To me, that's sort of a rear guard action. And I'm really more interested as, as a researcher and as a clinician in how do you make medications that are more effective? How do you use existing medicines to the optimal degree possible? And how can we really make progress in something that is really a devastating, really almost epidemic condition? If you look at 
depression rates, especially with the COVID epidemic, suicide rates, and other kinds of impairment. It's just such a common and increasing problem that we're facing in our society. I think rather than hashing out how well these medicines work, let's find better ones. Yeah, I think that's such a such an interesting message because I think like one of the things that I got from working on this episode, I think you were kind of talking about it in terms of your motivation, is just how complicated it is just to even navigate the conversations around medication for depression because people's responses are so varied. And yeah. And I think part of what like really motivated me was in the back of my mind, just knowing like this is a really hard problem to solve. And so then when I heard people talking about it or or saw people writing about it and kind of just like really approaching it in this very black and white way of SSRIs don't work, that set off alarm bells immediately to me. Mm-hmm. What I learned was that it's even more complicated than I thought. I also could confirm that like <laughs> it's not as simple as these don't work. It's right. just they don't work for a lot of people. And yeah. like that shouldn't be okay. We got to yeah. do more. Yeah, and especially for a topic as loaded as depression that's like yeah. has all of these social stigmas and stuff attached to it. Yeah. Okay, so personally for me, from the episodes that I wrote, I think the one that I learned the most from was episode 33, The Future of Electronics, How Small Can We Go? Mostly because like, I'm just not a big electronics person. I don't, I, I don't think that'll be a surprise to many people if you've been listening to this podcast for a while. There's a lot of physics involved. And so this was an episode that was really, really interesting to work on because I know that transistors are a big deal. I know that like their size is a big deal, but it was really actually new to me to kind of get into the specifics of why they're so important and, you know, their history and relating it to the history of computers and everything was just super cool for me. Um, So the clip that I brought today is from our interview with Samir Sankasale, who is a professor of electrical and computer engineering at Tufts University and who's working on things like thread transistors for medical applications. And one of the things I enjoyed most from getting to talk to him is actually kind of understanding how, like, over the course of his time in this field, how have transistors changed and like how have they evolved? Like how has he seen it from his perspective? Because it's just always cool to see someone who has a lot of knowledge to see how they experience these things that are so cutting edge and how that shapes the way they see the future of the field. How small do you think a transistor could be one day? Single atom, right? Uh, (laughs) A grain and source separated by a single molecule or a single atom. I think we are very close with uh, the next generation of transistors that Intel or TSMC, which is Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, some others who are building the transistor are getting really, really close to that limit. So during my whole career as an electrical engineer, every few years, someone would say, okay, we have reached the limit. There's no way we can go down below that. This is it. This has been happening my entire career, and I've been around for many years. And we have never hit that limit. We've always been able to figure out a way to get that small. So then you have to ask, what is the most fundamental limit? Well, the most fundamental is the single thing between the two ends of a transistor. And that could be as small as a single atom or a molecule. That's the end, right? That's where you will basically basically stop. So we can get there, I'm sure. Deboki, you were the one who was really leading that episode. Mm -hmm. But when we had that conversation with Samir, already just in that conversation, I learned so much. And I Mm -hmm. learned like how much my brain does not work like the brain of an engineer's. (laughs) (laughs) 
And he's like, single, single Adam. I'm like, what am I even picturing? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's obviously also way, again, way out of my comfort zone as far yeah. as engineering. But yeah, I think there is something very engineering about like, well, the smallest thing you can do, just the smallest it can get is just the smallest things that things could be. Like that's, right. that's the answer. The next clip that I'm going to share is actually from an episode where it wasn't necessarily that the content was complicated to my brain in a way that engineering is. It was a new way of thinking about something that I think about pretty frequently, which is climate change. So I will say that this year in 2023, I do feel like we definitely made more of an effort to really talk about the environment, environmental disasters and climate change. And I was really, really glad that we were able to also talk about how colonialist practices are not only contributing to climate change, but also making the impact of climate change far worse for some countries, particularly in the global south. So in episode 40, which we titled, We're Not All in This Together, How Colonialist Practices Are Shaping the Impact of Climate Change, we spoke with experts about two major examples of that impact. So one was the 2022 Pakistan floods, and the other was was the global garment industry. So one of the experts we talked to about Pakistan and about the floods was Myra Hyatt. And Myra is an assistant professor of environment and peace studies. And she is originally from Pakistan and conducts research at the intersection of bureaucracy, law, and the environment. Now I'm going to play a clip for you from Myra that I think really brings home one of the bigger messages from the episode. So the global south isn't naturally misgoverned or naturally poor. These are consequences of many things, importantly, of colonial pasts. So resource extraction happened from the colonies. The industrial West became what it did at the expense of the places and people it colonized. These histories don't end suddenly. Infrastructures of extraction and inequality continue into the present. When we recognize these pasts and their ongoingness, then I think we're able to see that the loss and damage issue is not one of poor countries asking for charity or for help. Because I think that the fundamental stakes here are ones of reparations and a politics of reparations makes many people, organizations, vested interests, actors, constituencies uncomfortable. And of course, that's not surprising. Right? So this is not an easy conversation. It's not a comfortable conversation. But I think that for there to be any real headway for us to get away from these kinds of narratives and, you know, long-held notions of the badly governed, corrupt global south, can't govern its people, can't govern itself, can't govern its water. These sorts of histories need to be remembered. They need to be recognized and they need, I think, to be brought into the present. I mean, working on that episode was so... Um... It was so interesting. It was so interesting to think about like how to approach it, who to talk to. And I think, I mean, I can't speak for you, but I think we both learned a lot from yeah. like from the, the experience of working on it. One of the things that was interesting from this past year, you were talking about how we've like been doing more episodes about the environment. And I don't think we set out to do that. No. It's just the more we were planning, like I think we might have planned like one episode and then it just kind of kept like dovetailing into like, oh, we also want to talk about this thing. And oh, we also want to talk about that thing. And so it just kind of kept adding on and becoming like the, each of their own episodes. And I'm really glad because it was really great to be able to have the space to have um, someone like Myra talk at length about the history of water in Pakistan and how that led to the floods. And like, yeah, just like in this clip that you you brought today, like I think, I think it, it just relates to something that 
is so important overall, which is like understanding science as like connected to history and culture. I think it's really tempting to treat it as its own thing, but it's just, it's not. (laughs) And like climate change is one of the obvious examples of that because it is so intertwined with how people treat each other, how we treat our environment, how we look at the intersection between science and nature and everything else we're doing in society. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that I'm very proud of that we try to always do with Tiny Matters. I really appreciate that we have the opportunity to be able to bring more than science to a science podcast. To me, that's always been really important. To me, science is much more interesting and impactful if there is context provided, whether that be historical context, you know, social context, often both. There's almost nothing in science that you can just take at face value and walk away with, you know, like everything is connected. Yeah. And part of us having the opportunity is also that we're really lucky to have the audience that we have that is really open to that conversation. Because I know from experience that like not all science focused audiences are necessarily open to that. That's like a very broad generalization. But there are like pockets that are very much like of the belief that, you know, science is its own thing that is above kind of understanding these other aspects of how the world works. Yeah. Um, It's kind of untouched. Right. Like that's not true. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And so I'm glad that we have this, this audience that is open to following us on this journey through the connections between science and everything else. Um, My last clip is from episode 31, Algae Transformed Earth, Next Stop Mars. And in the episode, we talked about what algae are and why scientists are studying them as a potential tool in the long-term quest to figure out if we can live on Mars. But of course, what that really means is understanding how algae have helped us live on this planet. And we talked to a few scientists about that, including Tanaya Cardona at Imperial College London, who has been studying algae and the evolution of photosynthesis. And the clip that I'm sharing today, it kind of starts off like a little bit bleak, but I, I it's a little bit longer because I wanted to include the bits that I also thought were really cool out of that bleakness because I think just what talking to him helped me appreciate is just how cool it is. We, we live in this world where life happens and continues to happen in part because of things like photosynthesis that are so basic to ecology and like ecosystems and how things work. It's so cool to me. <laughs> So we asked Tanai what would happen if all of a sudden algae ceased to exist. He told us it would be catastrophic. But then he took that mental exercise one step further and asked, what if there were no photosynthetic organisms at all? Society would collapse very quickly because there would be no food, there would be no crops. And eventually, most animals will not have anything to eat. All of the complex life on Earth will start to will be the first to go. <laughs> More than 99% of the entire biosphere depend on photosynthesis and oxygen photosynthesis. So if we eliminate photosynthesis, eventually we will have a, a barren world where only there will be perhaps clusters of life representing perhaps less than 1% of what we have now in some very unique environments, perhaps in hydrothermal vents deep in the ocean. All of the beauty of the world will disappear eventually and all of the oxygen will go away. And so Earth will kind of like return to its primordial state perhaps of 4 billion years ago. I'm so curious based on what you're describing, you're talking about us returning to this primordial state of Earth. 
Do you have an idea or a guess about how long you would think it would take to evolve photosynthesis again from that? Well, that's interesting because it links to my research. I spent a great deal of my career as a scientist trying to understand how photosynthesis evolves and originated. And from my research, I would argue that it does not necessarily need to take a long time. So I think it could be surprisingly fast. I was actually so shocked when Tanai said that. (laughs) I guess just because it was so long ago, like this is a silly way to approach evolution, but I'm like, it must take like so long. But it was it was wild for him to say, like, actually, it could have been kind of fast. Like, it happened a long time ago. But like that moment where it happened, like it could happen again again pretty quickly yeah and i mean it is funny because pretty fast is still like a long time yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. it's definitely a relatively speaking like thing. millions of years yeah, minimum yeah. <laughs> so my final clip it's one of our most listened to episodes from 2023 uh was episode 45 titled the salem witch trials lsd theory and the fascinating evolution of mummification in ancient egypt So for me, at least, you know, just hearing the title, it feels pretty obvious that it would be one of the favorites. Um, And so this clip is from Margot Burns, who is an expert on the Salem Witch Trials, which took place in Salem, Massachusetts in the late 1600s and led to 19 people being executed. And it was actually the last executions for witchcraft in the United States. Wild that I'm even saying those words. Okay. So Margot has spent over a decade piecing together what did and probably did not happen during that time. And one of the things that she has done is help unpack a popular theory that LSD, aka acid, from a fungus caused the Salem witch trials. So here she is responding to us asking her about this theory, or as she called it, a notion, um, because it was hard for her to even call it a theory. When I ask people how they know about this, and they give me some kind of answer, I must have read it, I must have seen it on TV, I decided I wanted to find out everything I could about this. Most people who'd sort of looked into it a little bit knew about an article in Science Magazine in 1976 by Linda Caprell. As an undergraduate, Linda took a course on colonial American women and was assigned a paper on the girls who kicked off the Salem witch trials. Being a science major, Linda began wondering if there could be a scientific explanation for why the girls reported seeing these visions and feeling like the specters of the women they were accusing were harming them. Linda started thinking about what could have been in the environment at that time. Remember, this was the 1970s. The Environmental Protection Agency had just been created, and it was becoming increasingly clear that environmental toxins have a huge impact on human health. In talking to a medical student that she knew, he reminded her about LSD and ergot. And she said, hmm. So her hypothesis was that the girls could have been consuming bread that was made from rye that was tainted with this naturally occurring fungus, ergot. So she went out and looked at everything she could to see if she would find things that would support this explanation. So after establishing some degree of similarity between the girls' symptoms in a bad LSD trip, Linda looked into how ergot grows. She found that the fungus flourishes in marshy areas during hot weather. Based on diary entries from that time, the weather conditions could have been right for ergot to grow. Then Linda started looking at maps of the area where the girls making these accusations lived. 
and she noticed that the accusers, the afflicted people, were in a part on the map that was near a river. So she's got the weather and the conditions that are perfect for growing ergot on things. So she's saying, okay, it all, all the, all the stuff fits. So her results were, it's possible. Now, those of us who do a little bit of science know that just because it's possible doesn't really mean that it really did happen. <laughs> that story was incredible. It's so interesting to be able to trace the origin of a myth like that and yeah. to see like where it really goes back from. Because like, it's fair to wonder. It's weird that it like actually really took hold in a broader community or like broader conversation. But yeah, I love that story. So I feel like I've actually heard this story from so many people and even other podcasts, I feel like, mm -hmm. at this point. And so I went into that episode thinking, like, more or less, I was going to talk to someone saying, like, oh, yeah, there's a very good chance that that is what happened. And then I mm -hmm. started researching it a bit more, and I came across Margot, and then I started looking at what scholars who, like, really, like, this is what they study, what they think. And it became very clear that what I had been hearing was, in all likelihood, super wrong. <laughs> so right. I felt like this was an interesting opportunity to dispel that misinformation. Yeah, it makes me think about just like how seductive some stories are where it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, this is like a story that makes for such a good podcast title, like YouTube title, TikTok title. You start your video being like, did you know that the Salem Witch Trials happened because of LSD? Like it's just so yeah. immediately attention grabby. And so it's really, really appealing to like believe in it because it combines that sort of unexpectedness with a causality that's just like all seems to fit together. And sometimes that is true. Like sometimes the world is just really, really weird. Um, but sometimes it's also just that someone just needed to write a paper and call it but didn't actually come to an accurate conclusion. So I think that's it. That wraps up 2023, year two of Tiny yeah. Matters, episode 50. Oh, Very exciting. what a great year it's been. I know. It's been a really good year, I have to say. 2023 has been a great year. Mm -hmm. I have so much fun with you, Deboki. I have yes. so much fun when we get emails from listeners and suggestions. And definitely, if you have episode suggestions, please send them our way. When you send an email, we read it. So we really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Tiny Matters, a production of the American Chemical Society. The Tiny Matters theme and episode sound design are by Michael Simonelli and the Charts and Leisure team. If you have thoughts or questions, ideas about future Tiny Matters episodes, like we said, please send an email, tinymatters at acs.org. And if you would like to support us, you can pick up a Tiny Matters coffee mug. We've left a link in the episode description. You can find me on social at Sam J Science. And you can find me at Okie Dokie Bokie. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful rest of your 2023 and see you next year.